In the Gospel for today, Matthew tells us that Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John up the high mountain. This was six days after the climactic declaration by Peter, when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responds to the declaration by telling the disciples that he's going to be killed in Jerusalem. And Peter says, this must never happen to you. Jesus responds, get thee behind me, Satan. This is the context of the transfiguration on the mountain. The glory on the mountain comes in the context of the revelation of the death that is about to come. Luke tells us in his version that on the mountain, when Moses and Elijah were seen by the three disciples talking with Jesus, I quote, they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word for departure is exodus, as in the liberation from Egypt. In Matthew, Jesus again talks of this death to the disciples on the way down the mountain, so that the discussion of the death frames the glory, both before and after. But first, the cloud. We tend to think of clouds as obfuscating, as obscuring vision because of mist or fog. I remember walking in the hills in Wales when a cloud would suddenly come down and hide everything. And it was dangerous because you might walk over a cliff without knowing it was there. But I don't think the Gospels are talking about this kind of cloud at all. The proper context is given us by our first reading from Exodus 24. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. This is the cloud of glory on Mount Sinai. I have been there. And the traditional way to worship in that place is to start at three o'clock in the morning from St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of the mountain 
built in the sixth century and one of the oldest inhabited Christian monasteries in the world. Because of its remoteness, it was able to preserve half the world's pre-iconoclastic icons that still survive. You walk up the rocky trail in the dark with flashlights, past the traditional site of the burning bush, and you arrive at the top in time for the dawn as the red sun rises over the peaks of the range of mountains to the east. This cloud of glory is found also in Ezekiel's vision. A cloud filled the temple and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. And Ezekiel is repeating the language found in reference to the tabernacle in Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we should think of this cloud, not as obfuscating, but as being too bright for ordinary sight. In the way you cannot look directly at the sun without damaging your eyes. Our opening hymn that we've just sung puts this well. It begins, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. And it ends, all praise we would render, oh help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. Before the coming of the cloud, Peter, James and John see Jesus transfigured, literally metamorphosed with his face shining like the sun and his clothes as white as the light. With him, they see Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And it's natural to take this to mean that Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets, the whole revelation of the scriptures so far. Peter's response is to build three booths, or tents, or tabernacles. It's easy to laugh at him here. And indeed, Luke says he did not know what he was saying. But I think we can partly understand why he does this, though this is speculative. Glory in the Hebrew scriptures, Shekinah, makes the people want to make a home for it. In John's prologue to the gospel, this is made vivid when John says, the word became flesh and dwelt, or literally tabernacled, 
or tented among us, we have seen his glory. The verb tabernacled in Greek eskenosen is made from the same three consonants as the Hebrew Shekinah or glory. I think Peter is responding to the glory he sees and wanting to make a shelter for it. And we can have the same impulse. If we see something of the glory of the Lord, we want to make a place for it so that we can secure our access to it. And God, just as Peter says this, sends the cloud of glory as it was sent down on the tabernacle and a voice comes from heaven as it did at Sinai. This is my son, the beloved. In our epistle lesson for today from 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Peter describes his experience on the mountain. He says about Jesus, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice coming from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have this prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I will come back to the lamp shining in a dark place in a moment. John 2 says, The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And then he tells us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In this symbol system, light is glory, or a manifestation of glory, or radiance. We are too influenced by Plato. And we move immediately, much too quickly, from light to intelligibility. Light does make things visible. But the radiance of the sun is first and primarily the presence and influence of the sun among us. And the presence brings life as well as knowledge. The life is the light, and sometimes the light is too strong for vision. More about this later. The point I want to make first is that mountaintop experiences of the presence of God are real, though they do not float free of tragedy and death. I have had times when the goodness of God seemed so real to me that I could almost taste it. 
for example, at St. Catherine's or on Sinai itself. Sometimes this has been at St. John's. When I have felt that we were worshipping together in a way that was pleasing to God. And this experience that Peter, James and John had was a foretaste of the glorification we will have when, like Moses and Elijah on the mountain, we see Christ face to face. It's another moment of heaven transposed to earth. This point about the cloud of glory is the first point. But the second is that while all this is going on at the top of the mountain, what is going on at the base of the mountain is a completely different story. This is why I asked to put Raphael's picture of the Transfiguration in the bulletin and on the screen. If you could turn on the slide. What is happening at the base of the mountain is that the other disciples are trying and failing to cure a desperate man's son of a demon. Raphael shows both of these events in the same picture. This was one of his most famous paintings, and it was chosen to hang inside the Pantheon at Rome when he died in 1520. But Raphael has done something odd here, and I want to dwell on it for a bit. He's given us two different visual perspective schemes, one for the top of the mountain and one for the base. For the top of the mountain, the view is from above. And for the base, the view is from the ground. Lord Shaftesbury, the great British art connoisseur at the beginning of the 18th century, remarks on this feature as a grave defect in the painting. He says that Raphael has made the mountain look like a molehill. And he has a point. We cannot, in fact, combine these two perspectives into a unified whole. Nietzsche also comments on this painting. He thinks the failure at the base is the grim reality, and the top is a fantasy which we project onto reality in order to console ourselves. He says it's like sunspots in reverse. When we look up at the sun, we get dark spots in our eyes. But the illusion at the top of the mountain, he says, is like light spots to protect us from the dark. Or we might think the other way around, that only the top is real. We might think we should turn our eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face 
and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But I think, contrary to Lord Shaftesbury, that what Raphael has done here is quite deliberate and is in fact a mark of his genius. We do have to take both of these perspectives and we do not know how to hold them together. Michelle preached three weeks ago about Mary and Rachel. The Magi come to Bethlehem and give their gifts and an angel appears to Joseph, warning him to flee with Mary and the baby. And then Herod, in fury, orders all the boys in Bethlehem who were two years old or younger to be killed. Matthew quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The Christmas story is a story of light shining in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it, but this does not mean that the darkness is not real. We have to have both these perspectives what Michelle called lament and praise, Rachel and Mary. And this is what Raphael is trying to show in his picture. And it's important to say both that we have to adopt both of these two competing perspectives and also that we do not know how to combine them. Could you turn off the slide? Thanks. But that is not the end of the story. It's the second point, but there is a third. When Peter, James and John hear the voice from heaven, they are terrified and they fall face down to the ground. But Jesus comes over to them and touches them and says, don't be afraid. When they look up, they see no one except Jesus. And this is Jesus back to their normal picture of him. It's as though he's saying, it's all right, it's just me. But their situation is now radically changed. He has shown them his glory. John records that in Jesus' final prayer before he goes with the disciples to Gethsemane, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me. I think when John says in his prologue, we have seen his glory, this means that John is thinking of the seeing, the epiphany, as an unveiling of what was already there. 
And this means that there is a miracle, not just in the unveiling, but in the previous veiling. The transfiguration is, so to speak, the other way round from the empty described in Philippians 2, where Jesus is said to have emptied himself, not thinking equality with God something to be grasped, but taking on the form of a servant. The same word is used for the veiling and the unveiling. Jesus took on the form, in Greek, the morphe of a servant, and the transfiguration is when Jesus was transformed, in Greek, metamorphosen. The third point of this sermon is not just that Jesus has this glory, but that he has given it to us. So John tells us that Jesus, in the same prayer in the upper room, for those who come to believe in him, says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. Our glory is Christ in us. Jesus comes back down the mountain and he heals the boy whom the disciples had been unable to heal on their own. And he tells them that this was because their faith was not yet strong enough. But this is going to change. We should go back again to the prologue to John's Gospel. In him was life. And that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Two points. I don't think the translation overcome is exactly right here though it's traditional. The word is katelaben. The new international version translates, the darkness has not understood it, but I don't think that's quite right either. The first meaning of the word is to appropriate something. You take it over in such a way that it becomes yours. So the darkness has not appropriated the light, has not made it its own. But secondly, what does it mean to say that, in the, that the word was life and, and that life was our light, which the darkness did not take over? Again, the light is not primarily intelligibility, though it does bring intelligibility. And that's why the word understood is wrong as a translation in the prologue. I think the light is the glory that Jesus says he has given us. So then this text means that the life of Christ in us is our glory. And John says immediately, the light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness has not made it its own. When the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, in tongues of fire, like the fire on Sinai, the disciples find that they do now have the power to cast out demons. Their faith is now strong enough because Christ's life is now in them. And because it is his life in all of them, they become one as Jesus and the Father are one. I think we sometimes get glimpses of the glory that Christ has given us, this life which is our light. Here is an example. In 2020, my wife Terry was sick with a blood cancer, multiple myeloma. And when one of the chemotherapies stopped being effective, she agreed to a new, harsher therapy. The first treatment with the new therapy had a significant chance of an adverse reaction, and it made her very weak. But it happened to be the same day as my last class at Yale, the last class before my phased retirement, conducted on Zoom. Terry had plotted with David Mahan, with whom I was co-teaching the class, to organize a Zoom bomb. Suddenly, and completely unexpectedly, at the end of class, the screen filled with people who wanted to be part of a celebration. People from way back in my professional life and people from now. It was overwhelming and wonderful. But my point for now is that Terry is full of joy. And she made a poster with help from Ian Weston. And despite the chemotherapy, she was just radiant. I think I got a glimpse of her glory. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not made it its own. Peter, in our second lesson, puts it this way. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So let us be attentive. The darkness is real. Rachel weeps for her children and refuses to be comforted because they are no more. We sometimes fail to cast out the demons. 
Multiple myeloma is a deadly and crafty enemy, and sometimes the enemy wins. We have to allow ourselves to lament. But in the midst of the darkness, the glory sometimes shines, and we need the eyes to see it. Sometimes it shines in us, and we see it in each other. It's not an illusion. It is Christ's life in us. And the day will dawn, and the morning star will rise in our hearts. Christ has given us his glory. And this is not merely future. We get glimpses of it now, if we are attentive. Sometimes when we come down from the mountain, we see that Jesus is still with us. And sometimes it is the dark that makes the light of the lamp easier to see before the daylight swallows up the dawn. Let us pray. Dear God, we pray for attentive hearts so that when you show us your light, we are alert to see it and rejoice in it. Amen.